God is speaking a word this morning. Uh, I, I obviously I know what I'm going to be preaching on before I step behind this pulpit, and it never ceases to amaze me how God will speak through the worship songs. My wife does not know what I'm going to be preaching on. I rarely share uh, the sermon with her. Um, Zach had no clue what I'm going to be preaching on, and yet he touched on it. A number of the songs, and I am only going to be bringing a confirmation word this morning, okay? A confirmation word. To do that, I want to remind you, we are going through a series that I've entitled Life in the Spirit, and I'm going to suggest to you, even though we learned about that last week, we're going to continue to learn about it, Jesus is our ultimate example of this, life in the spirit. Now, some of us have never thought about that. Oh my goodness, he's God. Why would he need to live life according to the spirit? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to see Jesus as our example of this and why he needed to, as I've used last week, source the spirit and why each of you, of course, including myself, yes, will need to source the spirit and what that means. And so we're going to go through this series And my prayer is that as we look at God's word, and this morning as we look at the life of Jesus, we are going to see this amazing example of the Son of God being completely dependent upon the Spirit, and even more so, as we'll see this morning, dependent upon his Father. Do you know that Jesus did, in all of his ministry, he did only what he saw his Father doing? He did only what he saw his father doing. Several years ago, um, Mike Jeffords came to me knocking on my door, frantic, upset, and he had driven to my house directly from work. And I said, Mike, what's going on? At that time, Mike was working selling auto parts at a well-known chain in the area, and he had gotten fired. And I said, Mike, you're a, I, I, I've employed Mike. Mike is one of the hardest workers and full of integrity, faithfulness, always on time. I'm thinking, Mike, how did this happen? And he said, the store manager accused me of stealing. And he is absolutely wrong. And I was amazed. He unfolded the story for me. And this Apparently, this man's, this manager's dad was an eye, a supposed eyewitness of this. And I said, but Mike, w- what happened? He said, I have no idea. He walked me through it, and he said, I have no idea what he's talking about. But he, he falsely accused me, and he fired me. And I said, Mike, this is wrong. We, we had our time together. We prayed together right there in my driveway. We agreed that God's greater good will come of this, even though we have no clue what's going on. Let me tell you what one of those clues was, however. And that was Mike was courting Sarah at the time, really wanted to propose to her, but realized he could not financially support a family. And so he had been praying, God, open a door, because he's ready to graduate, open a door for me to be able to have gainful employment where I can actually support a family because he's making an hourly wage. And it wasn't nearly enough. Well, this goes down. And by the way, 
we got word six months later the store manager got fired because he was the one who was stealing and his dad was involved in it. Isn't that correct? And, and, and Mike, though, became the whipping boy for this. An injustice. Well, let me tell you what God does with your injustice, church. As a, as a child, a son or daughter of God, this is what God does. He does not say to us, by the way, sick him. You go for it. You bring about justice. Because I tell you what, that's what Mike wanted to do. And I'm listening to him, man. I wanted to go to that store manager and confront him and look at those videotapes and you name it. And, and this is wrong. And there was an anger that welled up within me. I said, Mike, no, we're going to pray and we're going to see God act within two months. Mike got a different job, not as an hourly, but as a manager in a food chain. And God began to open the door. And after he went through the training, he proposed to Sarah. And what was it, six months later, whatever it was, they got married. I want to tell you guys that when you rely on the Spirit, God does amazing things. When you source the spirit, and instead of the flesh that says, I want to confront this guy, I want to bring about God's justice, I will be the right arm of God's justice. Anybody ever felt like they wanted to be the right arm of God's justice? Oh, come on, I tell you what, most hands in this room would be raised, and especially you guys. There's just something, we want justice, and if I don't see it, I will make it happen. And there are times in which we just got to step back and you say, you know what? God's word does say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Leave room for God's justice. Let him step in, let him be your defender. And so Mike and I agreed that that is what God would do. God, this is in your hands. And that's exactly what God did. And God turned around and blessed him with a job through all of this that he would not have had if he decided to stay gainfully employed at that place. Church, you cannot lose when you rely on God. You cannot lose when you trust Him. And we've been talking about sourcing the Spirit. And then last week I said, you know, when, when we sow to the Spirit, He empowers us to walk in obedience. Many times we tend to source the law. God says we got to do this, and we feel like little hamsters on the proverbial treadmill, don't we? I've got to obey. I've got to obey. If I want God's blessing, I've got to do it right. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to keep his commands. And God tells us in Ezekiel 36, you know, try as hard as you may. You can't do it, and for that reason, I'm going to help you, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. He said that through Ezekiel almost 600 years before the spirit fell in Pentecost. And he poured out his spirit to empower us now to walk in that. So, church, if, if Israel tried so hard, and we're going to be looking at Israel this morning, if Israel tried so hard to do it right and obey God, and they just couldn't, they failed over and over again, do you really think that you're going to do it without God's help? Really? Now, I'm going to tell you this. You're going to need to source the Spirit. And we discovered that by sourcing the Spirit and Him empowering us to obey, it was like breathing. And we use an example of prayer that when we pray, God births mighty revivals. But how dare we think that prayer is somehow an element of this formula? Well, if I just pray however many hours, then God is going to do amazing. If I just fast a whole week, no, 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 40 days 
oh my goodness, God's going to do anything I want. Really? That, that, that's, that's American Christianity, turning everything into a formula. But I said, look, when you source the Spirit, it's like breathing. And prayer becomes that Holy Spirit exhale. Obedience becomes that Holy Spirit-empowered exhale. And this Christian life of sowing and reaping is like breathing. And what does it say? When you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. This is the way we live, church. That eternal life isn't just heaven. It's how you live. And it's that source of life that you have right now. You were dead, church. My Bible tells me you were dead. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. But God raised me up with Christ in Christ and seated me with him in the heavenly realms. That is life. That is life. That's the abundant life that I get to experience here in this life. Jesus is our example. You know, let me just say this, and I don't think I mentioned it last week, but when you sow to the Spirit, you reap the fruit of the Spirit. In chapter 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and so on. And then in chapter 6, it says, sow to the Spirit. When you sow to the Spirit, you are opening yourself up to source him, to say, I am going to rely upon you, and he feeds me. Remember we talked about actually sowing to the Spirit is the Spirit feeding me. To sow to the flesh means I'm yielding to the flesh, and my flesh feeds me, and I walk in disobedience. Who's feeding you? Who's fe- is, the, is your flesh feeding you or is the spirit feeding you? This is so crucial. We're actually going to see in the life of Jesus how he did this. And it's going to amaze us as it amazed me because Jesus is God. And yet something happened when he took on human flesh that made him very vulnerable, just like you and me so that he had to source the Spirit. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, we're actually going to be looking at the temptations of Jesus, which I was tempted to preach in one sermon, and God put the brakes on that and said, no, you need to take three sermons on this. This is how significant Jesus' wilderness temptation was in his life. And I'm going to suggest in your life. But in Luke 4... Verse 18, it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the good news. Now, that's all that I'm going to share from that, because I'm going to actually be preaching that in a couple of weeks. Why did Jesus do miracles? He was the son of God. Or my, my question really is not why, but how? How did Jesus do miracles? Did he do miracles because he was God? This passage tells me he did miracles because the Spirit anointed him. See, that's what the word Christ or title Christ or Messiah means, anointed one. The Holy Spirit had to anoint Jesus. Jesus did not do miracles out of the virtue that he was God. He didn't walk around healing because he was God. He walked around healing because he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, says that Jesus, who was God, 
And in the form of God, nature, essence, is what the Greek word's getting at there. In, in his essence was God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. He released that, if you will, and he took on the form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But I left something out there. It says that we needn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. It says immediately, he made himself nothing. And some translations say he emptied himself. And I'm not going to argue with the word empty as a translation. It can be used that way. I just don't think it's the best one here. Because that concept of Jesus emptying himself gives us the impression that Jesus yielded some of his godness. And Jesus never did. Jesus was fully God. Here is the omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, omniscient God, and he is taking on human flesh, which then limited his ability to be omnipresent, om omniscient, and omnipotent. It is not that he yielded these attributes. Jesus was still that, but because he had taken on human flesh, was then limited. So I realize that they're very close, but I do want to just simply say that Jesus in no way, when he took on human flesh, when he was born as a babe in Bethlehem, he did not yield any of his godness. He did not surrender it. What he surrendered was those rights and those glories that he had. And so instead of him going around healing because he was God, he had taken on human flesh and human limitations that then necessitated him to source the spirit, just like you and I do. Now, Jesus then, as we're going to read chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' temptations. But before I do that, I'm going to read two verses. Verse 1, excuse me, of chapter, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. This is Jesus' baptism. And John the Baptist is baptizing him. And when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was then anointed at his baptism by the Spirit, so that in chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. Now look at verse 14. After Jesus' wilderness experience for 40 days, it says this, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus returned from his baptism full of the Spirit, and in the desert, then when he was done, he, after when he returned from the wilderness to Galilee, he returned in the power of the Spirit. So Jesus 
He was filled with the Spirit, and then because of this wilderness experience, he was ready then for ministry to function in the power of the Spirit. And as a result, he was anointed in his speech. And as we, we're going to look at in a few weeks, for this quote from Isaiah 61 that I read initially to you, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me and anointed me, not only in speech, but when he laid hands on the sick, they were healed. When people even initiated and touched, but the hem of his garment, they were completely healed. This wasn't just the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. This was others later. Maybe they heard about this. All you got to do is touch the hem of his garment. The power of the spirit was on him. Now I'm going to suggest this to you. That Jesus' wilderness experience was absolutely crucial in preparation for his anointed ministry. Now, let me say this. For you in your life to be anointed in any kind of ministry, you have got to go through a wilderness experience. For you, and we're going to see this in a moment, for you to walk in the full blessings and promises that God has for you, you're going to need to go through the wilderness experience. Is that not what Israel had, had happened in their life? They were, they were promised the promised land, and it was a promise that was given 430 years before, but God had to bring them through a wilderness experience, and we're going to see this in a moment, why? In order for them to inherit and for them to be ready and prepared for their heart to be set to be able to inherit all of those promises and blessings. And I'm going to guarantee it that sitting here, many of you, if not all of you, there is something that beats in your heart that is of God. There are these promises of God. It might be about marriage or having children. It might be about owning your business one day. It might be about God using you as a resource and channel of financial blessing. I know some people, by the way, who will need that help. It might be that God is feeling, or you're feeling a call of God to ministry in various capacities. Let me say that that would include all of you, by the way. All of you are called to ministry. Some of you, some of you, it's going to occupy your entire full time, and that will be what you are called to do. But your desert experience, your wilderness experience is absolutely crucial to prepare you for this. There are certain things that God is going to need to do in your life in order to prepare you. So today, we're going to focus on this first temptation. I'm going to read to you just the first four verses. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So understand that even though we have three temptations recorded, Jesus was tempted the entire 40 days. There were more. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. Why does Satan, the devil, you address Jesus in this way, son of God? It is purposeful. 
At Jesus' baptism, the confirmation came, and it wasn't just for Jesus to hear, it was for everybody to hear. And according to Luke 3, the Pharisees and Roman soldiers were gathered around as well. This would be very typical of John's baptism. It gathered a lot of people, some that were opposed to what he was doing and others that were completely for it, and they're the ones who got baptized. The father said from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. How many miracles had Jesus done at that point? According to John, he had not done any. He was baptized in John 1, and it was in John 2 that he turned the water into wine, and it was declared his first miracle. When you're reading in the Gnostic Gospels, by the way, that were hundreds of years after the true four Gospels, you will find Jesus doing miracles when he's 12 years old and when he's a little kid. And all of those miracles are characteristic of, they have no purpose. They are to wow you. And Jesus even takes vengeance out on a little boy when he's a little boy. And, and it's just silliness, honestly. But Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, and then he does these miracles. Jesus is declared the Son to all of those gathered around. And as the Son, we're going to need to see there is this intimate relationship that the Son has with the Father that if you're not careful, you'll miss, but it's throughout Jesus' ministry. And and Jesus relies on that relationship. He does not rely simply on the fact that he is God so that he can do anything and everything, so that he has no needs, emotional needs, physical needs. He does. Jesus has emotional needs. Jesus does have physical needs. And he looks to the Father to meet those needs. And this is not any different occasion as he is now in the wilderness for 40 days, fast, fasting those 40 days, and he is hungry, and the devil comes and he addresses him, Son of God. Son of God. The devil addresses him in the first temptation, and in Luke's version here, also in the last. We're going to see in a couple of weeks why that's the case. But right now, as the Son, his folk, as the Son of God, there are two things then that are being focused on. Number one, you are God as the Son of God. And number two, you're in relation with the Father You're in relation with the Father, and the Father loves you, and the devil is appealing to these two things with this title. The devil wants Jesus to turn the bread, excuse me, to turn the stone into bread as God. You have the power to do that as God. You can do this. But Jesus had chosen to lay that right aside, and he would now find that he is completely dependent upon the Father and the power of the Spirit to do any miracles. The second thing, though, is that as God, excuse me, 
as one sent by the Father, Jesus was now being asked to do a miracle that would be self-serving. Now, here's something that you can research. Look at every single miracle that Jesus did outside, of course, the the Gnostic Gospels, the four Gospels. All of Jesus' miracles are never directed inward. They never serve himself. They are always serving others. And you're going to find this to be the case in anything in your life. You will be spent on giving and serving and focused outward. And the devil is saying, hey, do this for you. Look at your need. Meet your own needs. And Jesus is saying his life is completely poured out. I am beginning a ministry. And by the way, as a carpenter, he was supporting his mother, no doubt. His father had passed away. He was supporting his mother. And now his older brothers, James and such, they were old enough. They would take that mantle. And now he was moving on into this ministry. And his first temptation was seek and source self. Look to yourself to meet your need. And in essence, trying to isolate the concept that he's the son of God in direct relationship with the father. No, meet your own needs. He doesn't encourage him to call on the father. No, meet your own needs. And many of us, when we're going through our wilderness experience, we are frantic because we are trying so hard to change the outcome of this, that we fail to completely rely upon God. And we're relying on our intelligence, our talents, our gifting, our, our, our skills, our knowledge, and everything else, trying to figure out how to solve this problem. And I'm going to tell you this, that God's purpose of your wilderness experience is to show you that you can't. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't apply yourself, but I am saying this, that you have got to be completely dependent upon God. That is the very purpose of why this trial is in your life, this wilderness experience. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The quote that Jesus gives, man does not live on bread alone. Matthew contains the full quote that Jesus gave, and he continues on. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Actually, each of these three wilderness temptations is followed by Jesus giving a quote from Scripture, and all of those Scriptures are from Deuteronomy. So that's going to give us a clue. If we're, going to un- if we're going to need to understand how is this desert experience significant in Jesus' life, even necessary as it will be in your life, why is this necessary for Jesus' future ministry as it will be for yours? So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. <clears throat> let's discover something some truths in this passage, and we're going to be looking at others, yes, but let's look at some of these truths that we have in Scripture to be able to gain this understanding of why is this wilderness experience so significant in Jesus's life, even as your wilderness experience will be incredibly significant and important. You see, when we go through our wilderness experiences, so many times we, we pray, God, remove this wilderness experience. Get rid of this wilderness experience. But the Spirit led Jesus into this wilderness experience. I, I'm going to suggest to you 
that God has a sovereign purpose. And though we may find ourselves trying to pray away these trials and these difficulties, there is a sovereign purpose for them that God is orchestrating the events in your life and he is having you walk through them, even as he's having Jesus walk through them, even as he's having Israel walk through these for a very clear purpose. We're going to discover that in just a moment. Are you with me now? Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Be careful. This, by the way, is at the end of the 40 years of their wandering. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to be hungry, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with the manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. This wilderness experience is a discipline. Discipline is not always punishment, though. Discipline, like when you are learning the disciplines in military service, that means there is a rigor, a, a, a schedule, a regime that you are seeking to follow and it is building discipline in you. So disciplines many times are not just punishments when we do wrong, but it is God trying to form this, this, this uh, strength of discipline in your life. Now, it says here, that they wandered for 40 years. Notice how long Jesus was in the, the wilderness, 40 days. And Jesus was led by the Spirit in there, even as the Israelites were led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. As a matter of fact, there was an explicit purpose for this to go through the wilderness. They could have gone on what was called the King's Highway, which would have been directly from where they were in Goshen into the Promised Land, much shorter. They would have bypassed Mount Sinai, but God said no, because you'll encounter war and you're not ready for war. So I'm going to take you this way, and it's a preparation. So... It says here that even though they were, that they were in the wilderness for 40 years, he did this to humble them and to test them. He did it to humble them because that meant he needed to bring them to this point of need. And we're going to see examples of this in a moment. But bringing them to this point of need and then showing that he only was the source of, that, of meeting that need. He did this because he wanted to test them. He wanted to find out what was in their heart. I'm going to use an illustration here. And it's, it's going to be a cup. Now, there's nothing in this cup. But how many of you, coffee drinkers, have ever 
like for example, walked upstairs with your cup full of coffee and you don't quite lift your foot up high enough and you hit the step and you stumble and what comes out of the, co- out of the cup but the coffee onto the carpet. Now, because of your dad's clear instruction, you immediately head downstairs, you wipe the cup off, and you clean up that coffee. Right, but my point is this, that until you stumble, until you have your cup shaken, you may not know exactly what's inside. Others may not know exactly what's inside. You might hear the the voice of your father upstairs. I'm sorry, but what's in that cup? (laughs) Is that water or is that... (laughs) Right, but your cup is being shaken. Israel's cup was shaken and God wanted to shake its cup with this wilderness experience to be able to find out what was inside the cup. But let me tell you this, God already knew what was inside Israel's cup. God already knows what's inside your cup. God already knew what was inside Jesus's cup. As a matter of fact, Jesus already knew what was inside of his cup. So why was Jesus' cup shaken? Because God wanted you and me to see what was inside his cup. And we're gonna see over the next three weeks what exactly was inside Jesus's cup because what was inside his cup is what needs to be inside yours. Let me just tell you this, that when you are humbled before God, that means that you are brought to a place where you realize you have this serious need and you cannot meet that need. The question then is, how do you respond at that moment? Now, especially guys, but ladies as well, I guess, there is a difference between you being humbled and you being humiliated. I'm gonna suggest to you, being humbled is a good thing, but when you're humiliated, that's because something is wrong with what's inside your cup. Because humiliation is an emotional response to being humbled. I mentioned this experience to you once before. I'll share again. When I was in ninth grade, I had just given my heart to Christ. And as this insecure kid, really valuing people's opinions about me, I shared the gospel with this one gentleman. And as I shared my testimony with John, really hoping that he would hear me and really hoping there would be a conviction of sin. After all, there was that conviction of sin in my life. Of course, there should be that conviction of sin in his life, but he did not say after I was done, wow, Mike, that's exactly what I need. Lead me in the sinner's prayer right now, please, in front of all of these classmates. No, what John decided to do was he stood up Now, the the teacher had stepped out of the class and he took advantage of that. He stood up. Well, I have to admit, I took advantage of that and that's why I was talking to him. But he stood up and he said to everybody in that class, and there's like 25, 30 kids, he said, everybody, Mike's got religion. I felt my face going so red and I knew that I was being embarrassed. I was being humiliated. God was shaking my cup and humiliation was coming out. And that humiliation, let me give it a little different name to it. I was so concerned about what those people in that classroom thought about me. And because I thought it wasn't good, it humiliated me. See, humiliation is not a good thing. 
Humiliation means I am too concerned about what others think about me. When you go through your wilderness experience, when you're too concerned about what others think about you, and then God humbles you, he's going to shake your cup and he's going to say, you know what? Yeah, what's inside this cup is way too much about you. Your, your desire for ministry, it's way too much about you. It's way too much about what, you th- what you're hoping others will think about you. Many years later, I had lost contact of John, and I encountered him one day at one moment, and I had an opportunity to catch up with him, and I had an opportunity to share the gospel again with him. We ran into each other at the University of Delaware probably five, six, six years later, maybe seven. And this time, John didn't respond that way. This time, John listened. And John was actually humble in listening. And I, I, I've not heard word. I've Googled him since then. And maybe I'll, I, I, I don't know. But I do pray, God, please, let those simple words, when I was in ninth grade, and then when I was a junior in college, let those words just keep coming back to him until he turns to you. But God shook my cup. And what came out when I was in ninth grade, it was the insecurities. And God began to show me, yeah, Mike, I, I just, I want to change this. I want to change how concerned you are about others affirming you and praising you and thinking you're so wonderful. And I'm going to suggest to us that in your wilderness experience, God wants to shake your cup. But he doesn't want to shake it so that he sees what's, he already knows what's inside your cup. He needs you to see it. He needs you to see just how dependent upon yourself you are. And so for this reason, Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone. Quoting from this passage, man, you know what, devil? I do not need to live just by this bread. There is so much more to life than just the food that I eat. It is this relationship as the son that I have with my father and I must look to him and I, and I must rely upon him. And I'm gonna tell you this, devil, that every time I do that, my father will be absolutely good to his promises. He had been called to ministry and even death on a cross and that is where he was going and no matter how hard the devil would try, he would not be able to stand in his way because he had this intimate relationship with his father. And even though his cup was being shaken, it was not about him. It was about us. The joy set before him. That's why he endured the cross. In Exodus chapter 14, and I'm going to be very quick with this. Here, Israel is encountering, after leaving Egypt, after leaving slavery, they're backed up against the Red Sea. 
They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, because Pharaoh's army had cornered them. They said to Moses, was it because there, was no gra- there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And for many of us, when we are in our desert experience, when we're up against this this dead, this, excuse me, this Red Sea, that if we walked across it, we will surely die. So if we face the Red Sea, we'll die. If we face the Egyptian army, we will die. And that's how we feel sometimes. We're in this crisis. We're in this refining experience. God is shaking the cup. And we are saying, God, where are you? And they cry out to the Lord. And I'm going to suggest to you, they cry out to the Lord with complaining. Not, oh Lord, help me. Not, oh Lord, I need you to fix my problem. But God, what is up with this? Why have you allowed this in my life? Why have you allowed us to to be brought out of Egypt only to die in the desert? Maybe... Because that vision that God has put in your life, maybe that vision needs to find itself at the bottom of that Red Sea because there's too much of you and not enough of Jesus. But let me just say this, that when they cried out to God, God did answer them and he parted the sea. And as we turn over to chapter 15, three days later, or at least About three days later, they were without water, and they begin to complain. They come across a a provision of water from the Lord, but it's bitter. So what are we going to do about, great, God, you provide it, but we can't even drink it. So God tells Moses, take a tree here and throw it into this this pond, this lake, and the bitter water will become sweet. (coughs) It will be healed. And they realized that if they could just stop complaining, or we realize as we're re- they didn't realize it yet, but if they could just stop complaining and they could just truly go to the Father and say, God, I need you, and not complaining to God, that he would provide, and that's exactly what God did. And then within one month after they leave Egypt, they're in the desert, and it says there in verse One, it says of chapter 16, on the 15th day of the second month, they left on the 15th day of the first month. So within one month, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died in the Lord's hand in Egypt or by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Can I ask you, is, is that how you feel sometimes when you're in your, your wilderness experience? God, what are you doing here? Are you, are you trying to kill me? That, is that really your heart? Are you against me? Are you putting me up against the wall just to, to humiliate me, just to, to embarrass me, just to show up? whatever, but God, you've abandoned me. God, are you doing this so that you will kill me? Are you doing this so that you'll kill my family? And we complain and we grumble. We allow fears to control us, anger to control us. And God's whole point is to shake that cup and say, Mike, Mike, are you really dependent upon me? 
is the only thing you're concerned about in life are these simple provisions? I provide for the sparrows. Is it not too hard for me to provide for you? What a simple thing. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word, every promise that proceeds from the mouth of God, that he is faithful, that he is loving. He will never leave you or abandon you. You can fully trust him. He will always come through for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age was his promise. Within one month, Israel almost died at the hand of Pharaoh or the Red Sea. They almost died because they had no water and they almost died because they had no food. Every single time when their cup was shaken, they complained. They were filled with fear and they sourced the flesh. They did not seek God. They did not source God. And yet, every day they woke up, there was the pillar of cloud and fire to remind them, I am leading you in this wilderness. Can I ask you, do you really trust God in your wilderness experience? I understand the, the why questions. God, I don't understand why you're doing this. I don't understand why I am here. But can I tell you, even Jesus himself went through a wilderness. Why wouldn't you, as his son, as his daughter, why wouldn't he privilege you to go through this desert experience as well? So Mike lost his job, and God blessed him with another. He proposed, got married, and then, what was it, child one or two, somewhere around there, and his manager at the store he's at tanks him. Tanks him. He gets released. May I say again that when Mike confided in me, there was a frustration. There was an injustice that was done. And we said, Mike, you're going to love her. You're going to be gracious. You're gonna, we're going to walk through this with integrity. We're going to pray through this. Mike was totally on board with that. And as we prayed, God took that manager and removed her for the very reason that Mike saw. There was an injustice that was done, and God had Mike's back. But there Mike was with a family to provide and no means to do it. Was Sarah pregnant with Noah at that time, or had she just given birth? Or, I'm sorry? You had just given birth. <clears throat> just a few months old, loses the job. God, what are you going to do now? And let me just say this. They would come home and find groceries at their front door. God, story after story, God met their need. But this wilderness experience didn't end with that because just this past, early this past year, as Mike is working hard at his job, 
he ends up leaving and just saying, okay, God, what are you going to do now? Mike had been praying, God, lead me out of the food industry. This is not a healthy industry for me to raise my family. But I need a job that's going to provide as much or more, as many benefits or more benefits than what I've got. And God answered his prayer. And God opened the back door for Mike. He was hoping to open the front door, but God opened the back door for Mike and led him out. And there he is for, was it one, two, two months <clears throat> looking for a job? And can I say this? Mike, Mike confided with me. He said, you know what, Mike, that during those two months, God did not miss a beat in any of our bills, in any of his provision that we needed. Every single need was met. Do you know why, church? Because Mike has chosen not to live by bread alone, but by every promise, every good promise that proceeds from the heart of his God. As you're going through your wilderness experience and God is shaking your cup furiously and it's spilling everywhere, you feel like you're tripping over every step as you go up the stairs, okay? And God is shaking it and you're realizing exactly what's inside that cup. And it's not complete dependence upon him. There's more. There's more. Wanting too much for people to admire you. Wanting too much for people to be amazed by you, for, for you to make your way, for you. And it's about you. And God says, you know what? No. This is all about you. Your life is all about you being a sacrifice, poured out for others, serving others, giving to others. What was inside Jesus' heart was a total dependence upon his Father <clears throat> as the Son of God, in intimate relationship with the Father. When Jesus' cup was shaken, there was a firm conviction. I, I don't live by bread alone. I don't need to perform some miracle for myself because I have made a choice to be completely dependent upon God my Father. And he will meet all of my needs. Let me remind you again, at the end of this wilderness experience, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. As we are learning these concepts of relying upon God rather than ourselves, I am suggesting that this wilderness experience Jesus went through, every single one of these three temptations played an integral role in the success of his ministry. Everything Jesus did came from the Father, came from the Spirit. Today, I want to challenge you in your wilderness experience as you totally rely upon God. Go through this wilderness as he shakes your cup with a humble heart, with a heart that says, God is my provider. God is the one who will make a way where there seems to be no way. And he is going to bring you to a lot of locked doors, a lot of mountains that you can't go around or over or through, and he's going to need to throw them into the sea. Can you stand with me?
As God is shaking your cup in your wilderness, what mountain lies in the way? What experience are you going through? What is it that God, maybe in your flesh, is wanting to remove that needs to be cast into the depths of the sea? Let's seek him this morning, right now in prayer. Let's ask him, God, remove this thing in my life. Teach me what it means to be completely dependent upon you. Father, we come boldly before you. God, we are at this point where we realize that we cannot, but you can. Father, there is so much that we are needing to learn as you allow us to go through this wilderness experience. Would you please, please humble us. And just show us how good you are. The Israelites' shoes did not wear out the entire 40 years. Now that's a pair of sandals. Their feet did not swell. God, I know mine do every time I work a full day. It's hard. God, this was your promise to them. You are going to care for us in this wilderness. You are going to provide all of our needs. You are our complete source of strength and provision. That if we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, all these things, including our bread, will be provided for. Father, I I pray for our hearts. Would you please teach us to be so dependent upon you? I ask you, Lord, that when our cup is shaken, nothing but trust would come out. Father, I thank you for the many examples of brothers and sisters in Christ we have in this room who have been through wildernesses. And when their cup was shaken, we saw faith. Do that in our life, God. Remove the flesh. Remove whatever you need, God. Every breath I breathe, from you. God, you are good. And your mercies are new every morning. And I just ask you, Lord, teach us to trust you in this. Whatever that mountain is, whatever that thing is that is keeping me from fully relying on you, remove it, God. In Jesus' name. I'm just going to encourage you, if if God is speaking to your heart and you're going through this wilderness and there's confusion, there's hurt, maybe even anger, I'm just going to open up the altar to you right now. And allow us to pray for you. I'm going to close out this time right now. 
if you want prayer, don't leave without someone praying for you, please. God, you are fully trustworthy. Fully trustworthy. Do whatever you need to in this wilderness experience to accomplish your desire for my life. In Jesus' name. bless you. If there is any prayer that you need, by all means, let us know so we can pray for you. Enjoy your week and love you guys. Don't forget afterwards there is a birthday party for Alice.